Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Teresa Breeding. I am the Women's Ministry Director and one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. And this morning we are going to be continuing on in our study of the seven churches of Asia Minor found in the book of Revelation. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. I know Bonnie just prayed, but I need to pray to you. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you will just anoint me with your word this morning. Lord, that it will be your voice that is heard. Lord, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for these words from Jesus to the churches in Asia, Lord. And I pray that you will help us to understand them clearly and to see how they apply to us today, Lord, and that we will apply them and that we will walk out of here changed. We love you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So a little bit of background. Before we get started in today's scripture, we're going to be studying the um, church in Philadelphia this morning. But before we get started, a little bit of background. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, also known as John the Revelator. Not to be confused with John the Baptist. That's two different people. Um, this is John the Apostle. He had been exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, by the Roman government, that is an island um, in Asia Minor that they exiled prisoners to, uh, to separate them from society. His crime was practicing Christianity. While he was on this island, uh, he had a prophetic vision from Jesus where Jesus told him to write down his words and send them to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And you can see those on our side wall here. They're kind of in an arch. Uh, we have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia that we're talking about today, and then finally Laodicea, which Jeff will be talking about uh, next week. So that's seven churches. To five of these churches, Jesus had praises and rebukes. He said, this is what you're doing good. And this is what you need to work on. This is what's for you, and this is what's against you. It's kind of like when you have an employee evaluation. How many of you ever had an employee evaluation? Okay. How many of you hated it? Okay. Me too. It's so nerve-wracking. It drives me insane. The last one that I had with Pastor Dennis, he gave us this piece of paper where we had to rank ourselves on a scale of 1 to 10 in all these different areas like communication and problem solving and dependability and all those kind of things. We ranked ourselves on a scale of 1 to 10, and then he ranked us on a scale of 1 to 10. And then we discussed our answers. <laughs> oh, it was nerve-wracking, nerve-wracking. And that was just Pastor Dennis. So I can only imagine what it's like to get an evaluation by Jesus himself. But the church at Philadelphia actually did really good. Out of the seven churches, only two of them only received praises and no rebukes. And Philadelphia was one of those. And Smyrna was the other, which we talked about a few weeks ago. But now when we think about Philadelphia, if you're like me, you know, I think about the Liberty Bell and the, the, uh, the Rocky Steps and, you know, Philly Cheesesteaks and the Army-Navy game and, and uh, their nickname, the City of brotherly love that's right but we're not talking about philadelphia pennsylvania however this church is actually known this city is known as the city of brotherly love as well because the actual word philadelphia comes from philos meaning 
uh, beloved, and Adelphus, which means brother. And the king of Pergamum, King Eumenes II, actually named the city because of his love for his brother Adelus. So he loved his brother so much that he named the city the city of brotherly love. But uh, when people back then thought about this church, they didn't think about all of those things. They actually thought about destruction and turmoil and devastation because this, this city actually laid on a fault line and had been through several earthquakes and had been completely destroyed and rebuilt. And then they had several very strong aftershocks, which knocked down some stuff, and they had to rebuild all that. So they had been through a lot, but not just because of the earthquake. This, this was a small church. They were not very well known. They didn't have a lot of influence, and they were not very well thought of by the Jewish community in Philadelphia. Actually, there was a large Jewish synagogue there that had actually kicked them out of the synagogue. Because you have to keep in mind the distinction between the Jews. All Jews worshipped God, our God. But there was a section of Jews that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they were called Jewish Christians. And that's the Church of Philadelphia, is the Jewish Christians. And so the other Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they kicked the Jewish Christians out of the synagogue. And so this church would have been the Jewish Christians, but it was also would have consisted of some Gentiles who were not of Jewish descent, were not Jewish nationality, but they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so all of these people who believe that Jesus was the Messiah are what we refer to as Christians and what we're talking about today in the Christian church in Philadelphia. So we see that these Christians in the church of Philadelphia, they remained faithful to Jesus, to God, even in the face of great opposition, even in the face of great opposition from the Jewish people, their own people. You know, I see this in our churches today. I see this in our world today. And I say, I pray that we stay strong in our beliefs, that we stay strong in the word of God, even when other Christians, other faiths, may be getting a little bit lax in their interpretation of the word of God, that we won't compromise our faith to please the world. Because there are churches in our nation today that are not calling sin, sin, because they want to reach people for God. And they don't want to offend them so that they will still come in to their churches. But it's it's not reaching people for God when we mislead them to believe that God is okay with things that he has clearly said in his word that he is not okay with. And, you know, when those people stand before God on judgment day, they can't say, well, Pastor Bob said it was okay. Because God will be real quick to let them know that he's not Pastor Bob. He is God. And he gave us this Bible so that there would be no confusion on right and wrong. And he gave us the Holy Spirit so that there would be no confusion on right and wrong. You know, I don't have to go to Pastor Dennis and ask him if it's okay for me to steal. (laughs) My Bible tells me, thou shalt not steal. And the Holy Spirit convicts my heart of such things. And so we've got to be clear and we've got to be strong. We can't compromise the Word of God. And the Church of Philadelphia didn't. 
They didn't compromise the word of God. Here's how the letter starts in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So here Jesus is describing himself as the holy one and the true one, and more specifically as the one who holds the key of David. This is referring back to the Old Testament, to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 22. Um, in Isaiah 22, there's a man named Shebna. And he, is, he works for King Hezekiah. And he used the king's money, the king's treasury, to build a monument to himself. And there's a prophecy here in Isaiah 22 that says that Shebna will be replaced by a guy named Eliakim. And I'm not going to go into great detail about this story today, but if we were to study this in great detail, we would see that Eliakim is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Because Eliakim held the keys to the palace, to the house of David. And so he was the key holder. He was the one that let people in. And so if he didn't let them in, they couldn't get in, right? And so we see that Jesus is the key holder to the gates of heaven. He's the way in. He's the way in. There's no other way. There's one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. And so we see that as a foreshadowing. Now look at verse 8. Jesus says to them, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Jesus, the one with the key, has all the authority. He's the one whose opinion matters most. He's the one that can open that door of God's house and no one can shut it. No one has the power to shut them out. And so in essence, Jesus is saying to, this Christian, to these Christian Jews, he's saying, yeah, okay, so the, the, the Jewish synagogue kicked you out. The Jewish synagogue won't let you in. The Jewish synagogue doesn't approve of you, but I approve of you. And I open my door to you, and I let you in, and I'm the key holder to the gates of heaven. And that's all that matters, right? And, and he's inviting them into God's family, into God's house, and that invitation is to us today as well. The door is open to us, and no one can shut it. Jesus opens that door. Jesus is the key holder. When you think of the person who has the keys to the door, they have authority over that door. They're the one that chooses who can come in that door. You know, you can't, no one else can come in if they don't have the key. People make fun of me sometimes because I have so many keys on my keychain. But let me tell you something, I am important. <laughs> okay? Because important people tell you they're important or you wouldn't know, right? So I'm telling you, I am important. I have a key to every door in this building. I'm important. If that door is locked and you need in it, I can get you in. I'm important. I have a key to every door in my house. You ain't getting in my house unless I let you in. <laughs> Jesus is the key holder to the gates of heaven. He is the way in. He's the only way in. 
I know Oprah says that there are many paths to heaven. (laughs) She said that on her show, if y'all didn't see it years ago, but she said that on her show, that there are, that there's more than one path to heaven. She's wrong. She's deceived. And the deceiver uses deceived people to deceive others. She's wrong. There's one way to heaven. And that's through Jesus Christ, the key holder. And the good news is all we have to do is believe that. In the second half of that verse, Jesus says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They've kept his word and not denied his name. He's praising them. He's praising the church of Philadelphia because they have remained faithful to him through it all. Through, through earthquakes and through persecution from the Jews and from the Roman government. They've remained faithful and they've remained loyal to Jesus Christ. And that's why you'll often hear of them referred to as the enduring church. Because they endured a lot for the gospel. But they did not falter. Notice that he points out here that the church of Philadelphia has little strength or little power. Now, we don't know exactly what he's referring to here, but we get the idea that it wasn't a big church, that it wasn't a mega church. This is a a small church, maybe even a home church. But we also get the idea here that Jesus does not measure success by size or by number. Okay, I think a lot of times that we look at these big mega churches and we think, well, they must be doing something right and we must be doing something wrong because they have all those people. But that's, that's not how Jesus looks at it. Jesus looks at the heart. Jesus looks at the faithfulness. That's how he measures success. You know, I feel like, like Jesus is looking at this church and he kind of goes into protective mode. And he's like, well, they may be picking on you. You know, they may think you're small. They may think you're insignificant. But I don't. And when you're weak, I'm strong. You know, we see that in our own lives. When we feel strong, when we feel like we got this, you know, and everything's going good and we're successful and we're, we feel powerful and everything's going right in our lives, we don't lean on God as much. But when we don't have all that going for us, then we have to lean on God and we have to put our faith in him. And when we are weak, he is strong. And that's when we grow and that's when our courage builds and that's when our testimony stands out. He uses everything. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So he's talking about these these groups of Jewish people that are referred to as the synagogue of Satan. It implies that they are doing the work of the devil, right? Mainly because they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and they've persecuted the people who believe that. They've persecuted the Christians. That's the main thing. It's not that they're out just worshiping Satan and that they're following Satan, but it's that they're the tools of Satan. They are doing his work by persecuting his people. And by rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God. Jesus said it himself over in Luke 10, 16. He says, whoever listens to you, he's talking to his disciples, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. 
See, rejecting Jesus equals rejecting God. And it says that those who have persecuted them or kicked them out of the synagogue are going to fall down at their feet, not in an act of worship, but in an act of humbleness, in an act of humbly admitting you were right. You were right. That, That Messiah, that Jesus that you tried to introduce us to really was the Messiah. We were right. You were wrong. You know, you were right and we were wrong. And that really is the Messiah. And he really does love you. You know, the Bible says that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the meantime, there will be conflict. There will be conflict. And it's, it's, it's funny to me that the two churches that experienced the most conflict were these two churches that received the most praise, only praise, and no criticisms from Jesus They were commended for their faithfulness even through trial and persecution because they were treated terribly. They were treated terribly. Some were thrown into prison. Some were, of course, they were kicked out of the synagogue. Some, it says that some in Smyrna would be faithful even to the point of death. And you know what that sounds like to me? That these faithful churches, these people who kept their faith in God through everything, they were a threat to Satan. They had Satan's attention, and he was on the attack. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If, if you are following God, if you have committed your life to him, and you are trying to live your life for God, and you feel like you're just under constant attack, like he's just at you, take it as a compliment. Take it as a compliment. He's threatened by you because a person who can, can keep their faith in God, a person who can still stand up for God is powerful. That person is powerful. They can make a difference, and Satan will try to interrupt that and trip that up any way that he can. Stay faithful. Run the good race. Persevere. There's a crown of victory waiting for you on the other side. Let's keep looking. Look at verse 10 with me. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, the inhabitants of the earth or dwell on the earth is used several times throughout the book of Revelation. And in each of those cases, it refers to unbelievers. It's referring to those who are earthly-minded, who are very comfortable in this world. This is in contrast with Christians, okay? Because as Christians, this, this earth is not our home, okay? This world is not our home. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.11 refers to Christians as foreigners and exiles. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians uh, 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. This earth is not our home. We, are, we dwell on this earth, but we originally dwell in heaven. That's our original home. It's like this whole week, as I've been studying this, I just keep going back. There's a, there's a group called Building 429, and they have a song. And it just is played over and over in my mind. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this. 
world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. Y'all know it. It's a beautiful song. It's just played over and over and over in my mind. This is not our home. It's like those of you that are from other states. Okay? I met a lady a couple of weeks ago. She's not here this morning. But uh, I met a lady a couple of weeks ago. And she, they had just moved here. And they, they hadn't met anybody from here yet. <laughs> because we have so many people moving in here from other states. I was her first cross born and raised, that she had met. <laughs> Proud of it. This is my hometown. I love it here. But, you know, a lot of you have moved here from other states. And even if you've lived here for 50 years, we always ask you, where are you from? Where are you from? Because this is not your original home place, right? As Christians, we are from heaven. That is our home. That is our home. Look again at verse uh, 10. He says he's going to keep them from the hour of trial that is to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth or the unbelievers. You know, there's some, some debate among biblical scholars as to exactly what this means. You know, did it apply to just this little church in Philadelphia? Or did it apply to all of us today as well? You know, and this is where a lot of Christians disagree. It's the, the, the age-old argument of the timing of the rapture. You know, a lot of, of Christians disagree on this. You know, the rapture is when Jesus comes back to call the church up. Okay? And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we will meet him in the air, that we will meet him in the clouds, says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive on our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. (laughs) Yes. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. So the Bible tells us that in the end times, there will be a great time of tribulation. And in the book of Daniel, it tells us that that time of tribulation will last for seven years. And the last half of that seven years will be far worse than the first half. And so the question becomes, will Christians go through this great time of tribulation Or will we be called up to heaven before that? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. know. And you don't either. We may have very strong opinions. I have strong opinions. And you may have a strong opinion. One of us is probably right. (laughs) But we may not agree. And that's okay. Okay? This is not a heaven or hell issue. It's okay. We don't have to agree on this. But I think that as Christians, it's important that we know about it. Okay? And so there are three main positions on this issue. There's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation. And so pre-tribulation, or you may hear it called pre-trib, people who believe that believe that we, the church, will be called up before the great tribulation. So we get to skip it all. We don't have to go through any of the bad stuff. Now that is my hope. That would be my very first choice. (laughs) 
And then we have mid-tribulation or mid-trib. People who believe this believe that we will be called up halfway through or after three and a half years before it gets really, really bad. Okay? And so that would be my second choice. That, that would be my second choice. And then finally, we have my least choice, my least favorite choice, which is post-tribulation or post-trib. And people that believe this believe that we will have to endure the entire tribulation and that at the end of the tribulation will be the second coming of Jesus when he comes to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And we would have to go through all of it. And so... The question still is, will the Christians be raptured before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or after the tribulation? And the answer is still, I don't know. So this is one of the things that we here at Grace call non-essentials. Okay? We, we categorize things into two main areas, essentials and non-essentials. In essentials, we must have unity. And in non-essentials, we must have liberty. And in all things, we have love. Okay? But we have essential beliefs, and we must have unity on these essential beliefs. So if you uh, are a member, if you attend regularly Grace Community Church, if you are a part of this church, then you must believe these essential things for us to be unified as a church. Now, if you're here this morning and, and you're just checking things out and you're checking out this God thing and you're open to believe in these things, you're good, okay? <laughs> but <laughs> these are things that we as a church believe and we all have to agree on these things. The essentials are things like we believe in the Trinity, the Godhead three in one, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, okay? We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he came to earth and he was fully man and he was fully God. And that he lived a sinless life. And then he died on the cross for our sins. And he rose again three days later to life. And he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. And he will come back for us someday. And he, Jesus, is the only way to heaven. And that this Bible is true, all of it. Every word is true and relevant to our lives today. Now, if you disagree with any of those things, then this isn't the church for you. I don't mean to be harsh, but that is what we believe here. And if you disagree with any of those things, this is not the church for you. And then there are the non-essentials. In non-essentials, we have liberty. These are things that we can disagree on. Non-essentials are things like, can Christians drink alcohol? Should communion be grape juice or wine? What version of the Bible should you use? Uh, what should you wear to church? You know, these are non-essentials. These are things that we can disagree on and still worship together. And that's one of the things that I love about this church. You know, you'll see here, people here this morning wearing suits and ties on the same row as people wearing jeans and tennis shoes. You know, uh, you'll see people here this morning with their King James Version Bible open, sitting on the same row as somebody that's looking at the NIV on their Bible app on their phone. It's all okay. We can all worship together. These are not heaven or hell issues. And so we can disagree and both still go to heaven. And the timing of the rapture is one of those things. 
It's one of those things we can disagree. I have my opinion, you have your opinion. Just because we disagree doesn't mean that we argue. It just means we have different opinions. You know, and my opinion is not necessarily the same opinion as Pastor Dennis or of Grace Community Church, but it's my opinion, and that's okay. If I'm wrong, I still go to heaven. So here's the thing, back to our scripture in Revelation 3.10. Because regardless of how you read this verse or what your opinion is on this, the promise is still the same. We can agree that, on the fact that God will protect us either way and that Jesus will come back for us at some point, at some time. So we're good. Okay? The timing of the rapture does not change the fact that those who belong to him Those who belong to him will receive eternal life. And those who do not, those who choose not to follow God, will receive eternal condemnation. The timing of the rapture does not change that. And now when I say that God will protect us, I'm not saying that Christians won't suffer. We can see with the church in Philadelphia that Christians do suffer. And God said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We will have suffering. We will have trouble in this world. The the protection that Jesus promises here in this verse is not that we won't suffer, but that no type of suffering will pull us away from God, from the family of God. The Greek word here in verse 10 is similar to what we see used in John 17, 15, when Jesus is praying for us. And he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. His prayer is not that we be taken out of the world, but that the Lord would, or that the Lord would spare us from suffering, but he's praying that the Lord would protect us from the evil one, that in the midst of the suffering, that the Father would protect us, that he would protect our souls, that he would protect our souls, so that no matter what we face in this life, the evil one could not rip us away from the family of God. And that's the promise that Jesus gives us here in Revelation 3.10. That the earth dwellers, the unbelievers, they will face tribulation. And they will face suffering. And they will not be protected by Jesus. But the Christians, no matter what we go through, whether we go through the tribulation or not, we will be protected. Our souls will be protected. So if you've trusted in Jesus, then you can be confident in that. Let's look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So he's saying, hold on. He's coming. We're going to go through some rough times, but hold on. Don't let anyone come between you and Jesus. Focus your life on him. Hold on. Jesus honors those who hold on to him. Verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. So if you think about a pillar and what it would have meant to the Christians in Philadelphia, because a pillar is strong. A pillar is important. And I don't think that this church felt strong or important or significant at all. You know, they weren't a big mega church. They didn't have a large outreach program and a parking lot director. They were a small church. But Jesus is saying, you're going to be a pillar, a strong, important part of the temple of God, a permanent fixture in the house of God. And I was thinking about that. Is I mean, do you ever feel small? I do. 
I feel small. Not physically. I would welcome that feeling. But (laughs) significantly, do you feel small? Your significance in the world, your influence in the world. You know, because I may feel insignificant. You may feel insignificant. But Jesus says, you're important. Jesus says, I placed you on this earth for a reason, for a purpose. I have placed you here. And you are important to the kingdom of God. He has a plan for us to to reach others, to be his hands and feet, to allow him to, to live in us and love others through us. And I don't, you know, I don't know what that looks like for you. That looks different from all of us. You know, maybe that means that, that you're to go on a mission trip. Or maybe it means that you are to reach your children for Jesus Christ and raise them in a Christian home. You know, maybe it means that you're to lead a small group. Or maybe it means that you need to pray with your coworker. Maybe it means that you need to give $10,000 to the church. (laughs) Or maybe it means you need to buy a homeless guy a hamburger. You know, I don't know what being the hands and feet of Jesus looks like for you in your life right now. But you do. You do. Let's stop saying that we don't know what God wants us to do, so therefore we don't do anything. Let's just get to doing You know, just get to doing. Just look for something every day that you can do for him to represent him well. Just be, make it a point to find something to do with him, for him. Not because we need to earn our salvation. We don't need to earn our salvation. Jesus already took care of that. And not by our works so that no man could boast. Jesus took care of our salvation on the cross. But it's because... Because of what he did on that cross, because of our love for him, we are compelled to do good works. We are compelled to do things to serve him with our lives. So let's just get to doing. Look back at verse 12 again. It says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. We're all getting matching tattoos. <laughs> yeah. On our foreheads. Yeah. Look at this. It says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and, and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Revelations 22, 3 through 4. And then look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 1. This is a vision that the Lord gave to Ezekiel. It says, Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. 
Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it, so who are convicted and bothered by the sin that's running rampant. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark, who has the mark of God on their foreheads. The mark of God saying that we belong to him. You know, if you remember like back in in school, whenever you got a new book or you got a new notebook and you wrote your name on the inside, you know, I've I've got my name written on the inside of my Bible. This is my Bible. It's not your Bible. It's my Bible. And you wouldn't like it if I wrote my name in your Bible because that's not my Bible, right? I don't own that. We write our name on things to say that they belong to us, right? I remember the day that I married Roger. I do... I. He'll tell you I don't, but I do. I don't always remember the date exactly. I'm getting better. But I remember the day. (laughs) I remember the day that he loved me enough to make me his wife and to give me his last name. And that day I became a breeding. And I inherited a whole new family. And the day that you committed your life to Jesus Christ... You were given a new name, Christian. It means little Christ or Christ-like. You became a Christian and you inherited a whole new family, the church family, which coincidentally is also called the bride of Christ. We are part of his family. Someday he's going to write his new name on us. He's going to say, you are mine. You are mine. And that's exciting to me because, you know, we worry so much about the mark of the beast. Let's focus on the mark of of God. That's what I'm getting. Right? Let's focus on that. Let's focus on that. And if if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can do that right here today. You know, the Bible says, whoever calls on him, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's that simple. You can call on him today. Verse 13, our last verse. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. In other words, listen. Hear what God is saying. Hear what God is saying to us. So what is he saying to us in this passage today? He's saying, stay faithful. He's saying, stay faithful, even when the world is not faithful. Okay, even when the economy is bad and gas is over $4 a gallon, even when there's wars and threats of wars, even when people are being killed in our own community, even when there's natural disasters or you get that, that bad report from the doctor, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Even when the, the beliefs and the morals of the church are not respected. Even when everybody's doing it and everybody's saying it's okay. 
Stay faithful to God. Don't let Satan trip you up. Don't let Satan get a foot in that door. Don't go along with those Christians who say they're Christians, but their words and their actions say differently. Stay faithful, just like the church in Philadelphia. They were known as the enduring church for a reason. They could endure anything because Jesus was their everything. Think about that. Is Jesus your everything? Because you can endure anything if Jesus is your everything. If you put him first in your life and focus your life on living for him, on pleasing him, on representing him well, we can endure anything. You know, we need to evaluate everything in our lives through the lens of Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. And realize that nothing in this world matters more. That nothing in this world matters more. Nothing is more lasting. Nothing is of greater value or more importance than our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that's all that matters in the end. Not the balance in your bank account. Not your job title. Not the label on your designer clothes or your big house or your fancy cars. None of that matters in the end. When, when the end comes, the only thing that will matter is did you make Jesus Christ the key holder to the gates of heaven the priority in your life? That is all that will matter. That's all that will matter. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your message. I thank you for the message to the churches, I thank you for your message to us this morning. Lord, make us bold, make us strong, make us faithful. Lord, help us to represent you well, to not have divided loyalties between you and this world. Lord, this world is not our home. Lord, let us live like that. Let us live like foreigners. Lord, that we stand out for you, that we draw others to you, that you are the priority in our life because you are our King of kings and our Lord of lords. And we love you and we praise you, Lord. May everything we say and everything we do bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.